welcome again to another Invested Investor podcast. Today we have Dr. Ron John Narg, who's had a stellar entrepreneurial career and has been a wonderful angel investor in Silicon Valley and the UK. So Ron John, welcome. Can you give us a bit about your background and how you became an entrepreneur and then later an angel? So I'm um, an electrical engineer by training at Birmingham University. And uh, my final year project was in speech recognition. This is like 1984. And I was doing telephone digit speech recognition. And uh, that got me into Cambridge to do a PhD in that area, because not many universities were researching that area. Today we have Siri and we're quite blasé. But at those times, I used to give a demonstration of speech recognition for telephone digits, spoken continuously, because usually you had to keep a pause between each word. And people would fall off their chair. Now, how did you do that? And I think it was Arthur C. Clarke who said that any sufficiently advanced technology cannot be distinguished from magic. And people would think it was magic. And this was only 10 possible combinations, wasn't it? Yeah, yes, Nought yeah. to nine. Nought to nine, but you know, 10 yeah. digits in sequence. Yeah. So it was quite a difficult problem at the time. And I was enthused at it by my watching of Star Trek. <laughs> and I, I'm always asking young people today, why are you an engineer? And I'm telling them that I was an engineer because I watched Star Trek. I wanted to build things that were in Star Trek. And then I suddenly realised... They're thinking about Star Trek the movie, and I'm thinking about the first generation TV series. And so uh, I was at Cambridge and working on uh, a popular technique called neural networks, which is quite popular now. But I was working on it in 1985-86. And I guess I'm right now known as the first neural network company to come out of Cambridge University. Sometimes they call it deep learning today. And it's the sort of foundation of current artificial intelligence. And I left Cambridge and got this fancy scholarship to go to America, went to MIT and worked on um, handwriting recognition for bank checks. This is like, again, 1989 or so. And then there was a master's or? That was a master's in the business school, actually. But at MIT, everything has to have technology in yeah, it. Yeah. So I ended up with this financial technologies project. And then I um, went to Stanford and I wrote a letter. So what moved you to Stanford? Another It was the same postdoc. It's the same fellowship program. Okay. And uh, I think that's one of the reasons I got it, because I think I said, well, uh, I want to do a bit of science and a bit of management science. And I think they quite like that. Because most people would just say, I want to do an MBA or something. And uh, I wrote this letter to the most famous person in the field at the time, which was uh, Professor David Rummelhart who unfortunately passed away about 10 years ago. But at the time, he'd come up with the way on how to compute the parameters of a neural network, which are basically is a computational model, a very simplistic model of how the brain might work. We have about 90 billion neurons in the brain. And unlike a serial computer that we have in our PC, each of these neurons is connected to maybe a few thousand other neurons. And he'd come up with a model on how to create a mathematical model of that process and how to come up with the parameters. And all his papers said, Professor Rommelhart, Department of Computer Science and Psychology, and he said, sure, come over. I know you're a professor at Cambridge, come over. And I thought I'd be, in, of course, in the computer science department. But of course, it turns out I was, ended up being in the psychology department. <laughs> <laughs> so I was a bit nervous because I didn't know anything about psychology. But it turned out great what they were doing, what we were doing was trying to figure out a mathematical model of the brain. And he collected mathematicians, engineers, linguists, physicists to work on this problem. 
at the time, it was a very popular method. And uh, as I was finishing my um, postdoctoral work, in 1991 or so, it was the end of the Cold War. And you might think that engineers uh, have no problem getting jobs. But actually, at that kind of time slice, there was actually a period of weak economy across the world. Certainly in the UK, it was very weak. I remember that, yes. Yeah, because the Cold War just finishing. And so the defense industry all of a sudden was cut worldwide. And that had ripple effects Mm. right across the supply chain. And of course, the miraculous thing about Silicon Valley, of course, is now, when you can't find a job, what do you do? <laughs> start a company. <laughs> start a company. And so I was working at the time. My background was in speech recognition mainly at Cambridge. And I'd noticed that people were trying to build what they called, they call them PDAs, personal digital assistants. And these are little tablets. Now, we call them tablet computers today. Well, the Apple Newton was an early one, wasn't it? Yes, Apple Newton. And there was a Palm Pilot. And people were trying to create these tablets. Some of them are small, some of them are big. And the model there was it was going to replace paper. This is, I think, different to today, but the idea we'll have tablets that will replace paper. And uh, interestingly enough, no one was really working on the handwriting recognition part, despite having that vision. And people were using what's called print handwriting, where you write one letter at a time with a space all around the character. And I'd written an article at the time, it was called Byte Magazine, which oh, yes. a lot of people well. used to remember. And they said, oh, cursive handwriting recognition is impossible. And so we can only do print right now. And I said, well, I mean, it didn't work that well, but we have techniques like this in speech recognition to remove the spaces and know where one word starts and one word ends. And so can we use these similar techniques in handwriting? And so I started working on it and working with Stanford and Professor Rommel Hartz, and we started working on the cursive handwriting recognition and very quickly got off the Stanford computers because we didn't really want to be contaminated as such. There is a sort of one story. We were sort of working away and the Microsoft people found us and it was me and my co-founder who was a graduate student at Stanford, a psychologist. He couldn't get a job because he had a psychology PhD. <laughs> he was better in computer science than I was. And the Microsoft people did background checks on us and found out that we had the same professor that we were working with. And they visited with Professor Rummelhart and said, uh, oh, can you give us all the data and all the code? And Professor Rummelhart didn't believe in patents. He thought, it's sort of old school. Yeah, thought, open source, open everything. Yeah. Knowledge, all knowledge is For free. Society, yeah. We're a university. I'll tell anybody anything they want. But he called me up and said, well, these Microsoft guys, they've asked me for my code and my data. He said, what, what should I do? And I said, well, I think it's your code. I mean, he was working on a different yeah. concept. Uh, it's, it's up to you. Nine months later, we met the Microsoft guys and he said, he said he'd send us his code and his data. He never did. So he's kind of like helping us, trying yeah. to help. And so we were a classic Silicon Valley startup company. We were two guys in the garage. We finally hired one other person, uh, a Rhodes Scholar, actually, from Oxford. And um, there were so three of us. And capital? Did you get any investment? The total capital put in was $500. <laughs> which for me, by the way, was expensive. And so we uh, managed to get a first contract from Apple. And Apple, though, was working with our competitor. There only two companies in the world who could do the cursive handwriting recognition problem, where you could just join up the letters. 
And as you start writing the word minimum or potato or something like that, you know, sometimes you don't know whether it's an I or an E. Or, uh, so it's quite a difficult problem. So there's us, which was two guys in a garage in Palo Alto, California. And our competitor was uh, 100 people in Moscow. This is, again, like Cold War borderline. And so you can imagine the poor Apple product manager is in a no-win situation. We both had roughly even credibility. Who do I bet on? And uh, so they, they gave us some money to get a little prototype. We ended up working with all of Apple's competitors. Uh, and they ended up working with the Russians. Right. <laughs> on the Newton. Or on the Newton. Yeah, 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 so yeah. I can keep saying it's the Newton yes. that sort of crippled the industry. And um, just to back up, the Newton was a PDA and it had cursive handwriting recognition. But it was oversold. It was oversold. Apple had oversold it and said basically it would do everything, you know, make toast and uh, slice bread and everything. And then there were jokes about the handwriting recognition errors that were made by cartoonists. And it sort of put a damper on the market somewhat. But we kept going, we kept going. And then, um, now I was lucky enough, you know, I had a friend who worked at Xerox Park. He said, there's this guy at Fortune magazine who's visiting us. I said, I told him to go and visit you because you're actually trying to make a business out of this artificial intelligence stuff. So he came over and he wrote an article and then one day he called me up and said, well, it's a rather boring issue this week. So he decided to put you on the cover. And um, unfortunately uh, for my two co-founders, he'd cut my two co-founders out of the picture. <laughs> <laughs> I kept saying, well, it wasn't me, um, but I guess they wanted an international looking face on the cover. And um, two months later, Motorola bought the company. Bought your company? Bought my company. But you'd morphed a bit. You weren't just doing cursive handwriting recognition. No, we were, that's our main thing, doing okay. cursive handwriting recognition, a little bit of speech, but mainly cursive handwriting. We were still only three people. Wow. Bought for $12 million. Well, that was to hire you, surely. Or was uh, it some tech? Was the IP there? No, the way I look at it, just from an angel investing perspective, yeah. first of all, they only had a choice of two companies in the world. Yeah. You know, what creates value? One is yeah. uniqueness. Yeah, yeah. Right. And then they looked at the other company. Culturally, we were better fit with Motorola. And um, the, the company name was called Lexicus. Lex as in word. No, so the investment was $500. And a uh, little anecdotal story, just towards the end, we basically had run out of money. <laughs> and we did two things. One, we asked Motorola, do you think you can lend us some money while we're negotiating? Yes. And they kindly said yes. But of course, that gave us more negotiating power. <laughs> I think while they were negotiating, I think the corporate headquarters didn't quite realise we were only three people. Obviously, the corporate dinner department knew yeah, we yes, were. Yes, come to see you. But um, <laughs> negotiate hard, the price is going up and up. And then finally said, okay, they know you're only three people. No more money. This is plenty. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and then towards the end, um, I'd asked my uh, mother, I said, by the way, could you wire me 25,000 pounds, please? <laughs> Which is like 98% of her net worth. And my dad said, no, 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 don't send it to it. Right. But of course, she was always very loyal to me. And she said, she goes into the bank. It was the co-op bank. And in those days, I guess bank managers knew their customers. Yes. So the bank manager walks out and then tries to dissuade her from sending this amount of money to her good-for-nothing son 6,000 miles away, <laughs> which apparently, I guess, happens where their children yes. fleece their parents. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but she goes and does it. So I figure, well, the worst case, I'd have to, no, I'd get a job somehow yeah, exactly. and pay it back. Exactly, right? yeah, across the road. You know, then two months later, Motorola buys a company for $12 million. How long were you tied in for? Technically, three years. Okay. Three years. Did you work through those three years? I did. I did. I actually well stayed done. longer. I ended up staying six years. Right. And Motorola, they treated us very well. They treated us very well and very gently. They were very concerned. 
uh, because we were almost the opposite of the rest of Motorola, which are hardware people. We were very young. Certainly when you get acquired, if you are young, you get accelerated through the promotion, right? You get to be vice president, where most other people spent 20 years in the company. And here I show up as a kid, basically. Yeah. So here you would be- A lot of resentment, so that could <laughs> a lead to- A little bit. I think they were culturally, they were quite good and very careful to protect us until we could work out the uh, lay of the land and look after ourselves. So the cursive handwriting became K9 or somehow more. No, no, no. Yeah. So first thing they did at Motorola, they said, okay, uh, we need you to do Chinese handwriting recognition. And I said, I don't speak, read or write Chinese. And they said, we don't care. Just get me Chinese handwriting. Buy a company, hire people, do what, just go do it. Mm. So fortunately, I spoke, speak mathematics and we, we did hire some Chinese engineers and we created the, essentially the first Chinese handwriting recognition systems. Used on which product? On the Motorola pen phones. And this is another story. Just before I left Motorola, we built a phone. I had a touch screen, had handwriting recognition, had speech recognition, had a full screen browser, had games, had applications, and we sold millions and millions and millions of them in China. And of course, I said to my colleagues at Motorola, I said, well, okay, let's just ship this in the uh, US now, in Europe. And they said, look, Ron, John, you don't understand. In Asia, they think pictorially, gestures. And so this will work in Asia. It won't work in the West. Look at BlackBerry. They're eating our lunch. We need to create a keyboard phone. I said, all right, okay, whatever. So, no, it was getting the, it was at the time, this time it's the end of the 90s and it's the internet boom uh, is coming and I'm saying what am I doing here what am I doing in corporate I should be out there mm. doing stuff so I then started the second company Cellmania because I'd seen all the five-year roadmaps at Motorola I knew the internet was coming on the phone and so internet on the desktop was all about search engines and mobile directories Yahoo was uh, you know the earliest pioneer in this area so I said all we need to do then is a kind of like a Yahoo but for the phone. Mm. And people were just building these little small, tiny websites, and they call them WAP sites, wireless application protocol, to fit on a phone. And I said, well, you know, pretty much over the weekend, we typed in every single WAP site in the world, which is like 20,000 of them. It's not like millions at the time, it's only 20,000. And so over the weekend, we built ourselves into the biggest mobile directory, quote unquote, search engine. Just over the weekend. How did you find all these names? Well, you've got the web, right? So you just use regular Yahoo and you find the URL for the actual phone version. Mm. And uh, I had a team of content people who would just sit and just find all these links. And the only problem was that those early days, all these people were writing these sites. And uh, later on, people wrote apps as opposed to sites. There was no billing system. So unfortunately, not of them, there's no way to monetize it. And a lot of the mobile operators were almost doing the opposite. I was telling these little tiny companies, you pay us to be in the directory. So we made the independent version. Unlike Lexicus, which was bootstrapped $500 in, $12 million out. This is more, okay, Motorola plonked down a million dollars. And then we got- venture- For shares. For yeah, shares. for shares. Yeah, yeah. And then we got, you know, we ended up raising about- $13 million total. But not in the short term. The first tranche was a million dollars? First tranche was a million dollars, yeah. million half, basically. And then the second term, it was basically another maybe $9 million. And so the first valuation was at uh, $6.5 million. And the uh, second valuation was at $100 million in 2000. And 
too. <laughs> and uh, so he spent a lot of that in doing various things, ramped up to 80 people. And the third valuation, you know, we spent most of it. And then, of course, 2002, dot-com bust. Didn't matter who you are, how good you were, no one was writing any checks, right? And so we had to make the decision. I had to talk to the wife and say, look, um, you've either got to sort of take the winnings from the first company and put all of it, the whole lot, into the second company, or we have to close it down. So she said, okay, dear, um, well, I trust you. Off you go, do what you need to do. But she didn't quite understand the ramifications until after I'd done it, <laughs> which meant basically I was in the doghouse for five or six years. Because, no, we'd gone so from sort of several million dollars. You've got from student life, yeah, pre-lexicus. Then all of a sudden, what? There's a million dollars in the account, yeah. and then uh, you know, lived a nice life. And then uh, I could take it all and put it all in the next. <laughs> they call it double down in Las Vegas. Mm. So the third round valuation was at ten million. So down from hundred to so 10. six point five to 100, to 10. 10, yeah. And uh, at that point, we had $10 million of preferred overhead. That means you have to sell the company for more than $10 million before anybody, any of the employees, or any of us would make any money. And so we're essentially valued at negative 10 million. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was the preference share of some <laughs> Because form, the yes. preference. Yes. There's maybe a subtlety that often, I think a lot of entrepreneurs, maybe even today, don't, you know, you read these things about preference shares. Yes. I never really understood what it was until you actually get to the, oh, that's what preferred means. It means all the investors have to get their money out first, and then it's given out to everybody yeah, else. That's very common, though, isn't it, at so, the VC level? Yeah, which is fine if you sell for many, many multiples. No one really cares. And you bought preference shares yourself when you That's right. I bought, down. Yeah, so yeah. I ended up owning a lot, a double down, and bought preference shares myself. But then I had these shares from the old round, the 100 million pre, and we didn't have kids at the time. And said, well, these shares are basically worth nothing, literally nothing, because there's $10 million preferred overhead, and they're worth nothing. And uh, I sold them to my nieces and nephews for a dollar. In the West Country of England? Right? Yes, correct. That's right. In the UK, in the Midlands, East Midlands. And I uh, forgot about it, right? And they didn't know what they were. They didn't really didn't know what they said. Well, here's the birthday present. Here's the shares. And so, you know, for the next five, six years, I was in a doghouse. But slowly but surely, you know, we'd invented the first mobile app store in 1999. No one knew what that was in the first mobile directory. Our main customers were mobile operators, you know, Orange and AT&T and Telstra, these kinds of companies that we would basically private label them. And we would do the work. We'd test the apps, find the apps, pay the developers, download the apps, make sure no one can steal them. And um, we'd run it and we'd get a small percentage of, of the sale of the app. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then in the beginning when there weren't really smartphones and not many people downloaded, it wasn't very much money. But as it went through cycles, it started off, you know, ringtones were a big business. That went to, you know, an $8 billion market for really? ringtones. And then it's, people stopped buying ringtones, bought them, bought games and then bought apps. And uh, slowly but surely, our revenues went up. We stabilised. So when did you break even then? In 06? No, no, we were forced to break even. <laughs> it wasn't by choice. Forced to break even for about a period of two years. But, you know, that before between the second. But you had to cut the, costs to do we that. We had to no cut doubt. costs. Went down from seventy people to seven. Really. And this is what basically sorts the men from the boys. In entrepreneurs, often if you take enough uh, time horizon, often there's these upturns and downturns. And I'm always telling my entrepreneurs. So, you know, it's never as good as it looks, but it's never as bad as it looks either. But a lot of entrepreneurs, particularly in that dot-com bust era, just gave up. And for a period of two years, we had, you know, it was $5,000 in the bank. And then we had a $100,000 burn rate 
but we had $100,000 revenue. We had like $95,000 of revenue every month. Yeah, yeah. But uh, our costs were $100,000, but we somehow made it through and then to a final, very small round, just for a few hundred thousand dollars, which for us was luxury. And then- And which valuation was that? This was another this, No, this is at the 10 million. Oh, this is 10 million, okay, fine. But when we did that round, it was just a few hundred thousand dollars. Yeah, it made so much difference. You seemed relaxed. Relaxed, yeah, yeah, we felt, yeah, it was luxury. You got some and, money in the bank every month. Yeah. And then we got this key contract with Sprint. And this is the other lesson I give companies. So look, exist. You have to exist. If you believe your concept is there, but there's a market timing risk, and often there is because by definition you're innovating, and the market may not realize they want your product or your company. You have to sort of pace yourself and exist. Come hell or high water, you have to exist until the market wants you and is ready. And then we started getting this big, we got big contracts with mobile operators, built our um, cash base, but we're so traumatized from having no money, we didn't spend it. <laughs> and uh, we said, anything we do, we want 10 times our money within two years on any project we do. Even hiring somebody as well. Yes, exactly. And so as a result, we didn't actually do much diversification. And maybe if I had a wider board, we, they would have said, well, maybe Rondra, you can take a bit more of a risk and try these things. But we kept going. And then uh, around about 2008, we met with BlackBerry. At the time, they were called Research in Motion. And we said, look, we spent nine years at this point working on mobile app stores. Apple had just launched their app store in 2007, the year before. So we spent nine years, BlackBerry, do you want some help? Because we've done everything you can think of, you know, but selling videos, selling music, selling apps, subscription billing, PayPal billing, adding it onto the carrier bill, clubs, you know, games, clubs, like, do you want some help? And they said, no, it's okay. We've got 50 people working on it. Thanks for visiting. And we, uh, we went back and uh, kept working. People were afraid for us because Apple had just come out with its app store. They thought they would cripple our business. But actually, our business went up because all their competitors wanted an app store too. Mm. And people suddenly realized what it was. They wanted, oh, yeah, we want one, we want one. 2008 was a financial crisis, as we all know. So no one was going to buy any companies. 2009, leftovers of the financial crisis. No one was going to buy any companies. 2010, there's a window. So this time I hire a bank and I'm thinking, why do I need a bank? You know, I know all the wireless people. This time I spent 10, I know everybody in mobile. And I hire a bank and I find out the reason to hire a bank is not because I'm stupid. Uh, it's because when the CEO calls up a partner, a potential acquirer, it automatically goes into sort of, okay, how can we partner? How can we license? When a bank calls up, they know exactly what you're calling for. <laughs> you might get a quick no, but they, you, know, you don't beat around the bush. You know, the acquirer knows this is probably going to get sold. Yeah. And if they want to do it, then they need to act. And the banker, they had all these lists of companies to meet with. And RIM was one of them. BlackBerry was one of them. I said, well, they've got their own guys. Why would they want to buy us? And said, no, 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 we, I think we should go and meet them. So oh, sort of fine, we go and meet them. So we meet them and then Rim says, uh, oh, right, we need to buy you. We need to buy you right now. And they decided, not because their guys were stupid, but because the market was moving so quickly. The corporate development team had realized that they haven't got time to sort of build these But they've things. been working on it for two years already. These yeah. That's a hundred man years of effort. Well, what was, we'd spent a thousand man years of effort, okay. right? You know, right. we spent 10 years working yeah, yeah. on it. And uh, we've done every single variation. So they bought like five, six companies very, very quickly. User interface companies, mapping companies. And they were going to go head to head uh, against Apple and Google. Mm. And their argument was, 
well, we don't want to do Android because everyone can just buy the same part. What advantage would we have? And I think probably internally we thought that the Android system, we sort of undervalued as a Canadian company, probably a little bit humble, and they didn't undervalue the power of the BlackBerry brand. May not have realized that all things being equal, people would have chosen BlackBerry because they had a third of the market, a third of the smartphone market. And I think today Samsung has that, you know, basically took that approach mm. in that area. So they ended up buying Cellmania. And so I made about 10 times as much. The second time round. The second time round. Yes. So it took 10 times as long, but 10 times as much. Sold it to BlackBerry, worked for two years, got the phone out. And then uh, this time I thought, you know, it's time to sort of do something else. And you sold for cash or shares or both? Cash, yeah. All the companies I've sold so far, they all think their shares are undervalued and they all want to give us cash instead. And actually, BlackBerry, when they did buy us, their share price doubled you know, three months later. So my argument, we were free, basically. Yeah. So of course, it was all me, wasn't it? it was <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> what happened to the other customers? So you have other customers who suddenly you'll be bought by BlackBerry. Yes. Did BlackBerry switch them off, these app stores? Basically, yes. So, they must have hated that, some of those. Yeah, so basically, well, some of them were BlackBerry customers, so there's a little bit, uh, we have to negotiate manage that. that. Yeah. But the trend, I mean, BlackBerry, RIM, they were only half joking. They said, look, you better sign quick, because there's only going to be four app stores. I know you've got 20 mobile operator app yes. stores out there, yeah, yeah. but you better sign quick, because there's only going to be four, Microsoft, Google, Apple, and BlackBerry. Yeah. And it's basically ended up pretty close to that. Yeah. And it was really almost now a duopoly. And if you're not one of those guys, you know. Now, what I said to them, look, really at this point, 12 years old, uh, if anyone can adapt, we can. And, you know, we had competitors and they did that. They did TV app stores, car app stores. You know, there's still, you know, you can adapt. And if you're in technology, by definition, the market will change. Mm. It's not like building coffee shops. Mm. The market will change. Yes, you have to adapt. And to you have it, to yeah. adapt. So you sold to BlackBerry then, Ron John. And how long did you stay there on your earn out or because you enjoyed uh, two it? Two years. Actually, a bit longer than that. I think one of the things, you know, when people give you lots of money, I think you should be loyal to you know, a month here, a month there. I know some entrepreneurs like leave on the day, mm. right? But I stayed till the project was finished for the new phone that we're going to try and compete with uh, Apple and Google. Left and then advised Vocal IQ which did speech recognition again, and they got sold to Apple. So my story is, sold one to Motorola, one to BlackBerry, and one to Apple. Oh, well done. <laughs> Thanks for listening to another Invested Investor startup experience. Ron John has had two fascinating journeys, exiting to Motorola and what is now BlackBerry. A key tip to entrepreneurs is you have to persist and exist. Then when the market wants you, you're around to be eaten up. Look out for part two next week. Thanks for listening to another Invested Investor podcast. You can subscribe to all future podcasts via our website, investedinvestor.com, or via a number of podcast platforms online. Remember, you can order our book online. And be sure to follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook to get the most up-to-date, interesting, and insightful content from The Invested Investor. <laughs>